welcome everyone to the second episode of the second season of the Northern Spin podcast. My name's Michael Taylor, and as ever, I'm joined by the cheeky chappy from Chorley, or the banter king of Kent, depending on how northern he's been on any particular week. I'm suspecting this week, probably not. Chris Maguire. If, uh, morning, Michael. If anyone comes up to me and says, hey, it's you, the banter king of Kent, I will instruct my solicitors to take action against you. So, Chris, uh, has anybody come up to you and said, hey... You're Chris McGuire from the Northern Spin podcast. Okay. Uh, actually, quite have a few they? people have. Yeah, yeah. They've heard my voice um, and it just opens doors. But no, I mean... I genuinely have. A guy no. came up to me on Oxford Road Station and said, I love the podcast. And I'd never met him before. No, that's good. A guy called Jordan. No, Thank absolutely. you. Shout to you, Jordan. Not the Michael Jordan. That no. <laughs> would be. No. Um, listen, it's been another good week, though. Uh, not just have people been coming up to you, but it's been a good week for the Northern Spin podcast. Uh, downloads are up 70% in the last month. We've good. had an amazing reaction to last week's Northern Spin Extra podcast with the uh, one and only Nicola Headlam of Red Flag Alert. She was very she was, she special. Was great, she? she was brilliant. Yeah. yeah, absolutely brilliant. Anyway, before we get on with a packed show, a couple of other very important thank yous to our friends at What Media, who produce our podcast, and of course to our sponsors from Oscar Technology. Yeah, it's very easy for us just to say, hey, thanks to What Media for producing our podcast, as if that's all they do. And if you look at what they do on their website, you know, they do commercial and TV ads, they do company videos, drone recordings. I mean, they might describe us as a couple of drones oh. recording, um, live events, live streaming, and a lot more besides that. As for Oscar, they've been making the headlines themselves this week. They've obviously got a new PR agent who's done a brilliant job for them. Uh, they're opening their fifth US office in San Diego. They're about to open a sixth office in Scottsdale, Phoenix, Arizona on December the 1st, followed by openings in Amsterdam and Sydney. So well done to Oscar. They're quite literally going places. No, they are. Anyway, we're going to be doing our first Northern Spin live show this Wednesday as part of the People's Powerhouse Convention in Manchester on the 30th of November. We would love to do more of these. So if you organise events and you want people to come along and give a little bit of something different into your event, you can get me and Chris to talk about politics with the Northern Spin and give us a call and we'll discuss terms. Yeah, maybe we could extend that to Christmas parties as well. You know, if your six-year-old's got a Christmas party. No, I'm, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> right, what we're talking about today. Let's well, get on with it. Well, if this was the news, the headlines would read something like this on what we're talking about on the Northern Spin this week. Have the Tories giving up? Uh, have the Tories given up on levelling up? Is this up? a quick fire round? It is, yeah. It had the, it, well, I was trying to be quick, um, but for the third time, have the Tories given up on levelling up? They never started. Okay, why are so many Tory MPs quitting politics? Because they're going to lose. Okay, beware Michelle Moan, politicians who get too close to business people. Yep. And why is Andy Burnham so angry? Well, I think the last two are deserving of much more interrogation. Well, we're going to talk about all four. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about all four. Yeah. So let's start with the first one. Have the Tories given up on levelling up? Chris, what's your take? Well, there was a big meeting in Manchester last week uh, of the Northern leaders called the Great Northern Conference. Transport Minister Mark Harper was due to go, but he couldn't go. So he sent a video apology because of some last minute government business, but insists that the government has a, quote, unwavering commitment to the north of England. That didn't go down well with uh, many people saying he couldn't rely on Avante trains to get to Manchester. Then the audience were told that the next minister who was due to be speaking, levelling up minister, um, Deanna Davison, couldn't attend either. Oh. You know, I heard about that. I didn't go either. Um, they played a video from the MP from um, 
Sorry, Deanna Davidson rhymes yeah. with Vienna. Yeah. Um, but they played completely the wrong video. I mean, I'm intrigued. What did they play? Matt Hancock in the jungle or something? She, she actually says on her Twitter feed, she says Deanna as in rhymes with Vienna, right. which is, I think is quite good. Um, yeah, it was just a, um, it, it was just, it clearly wasn't that. Andy Burnham, who was there, said they're playing the wrong video and it turned out they were playing the wrong video. What I liked about Deanna Davidson um, is that actually she fronted up and said, hey kids, make sure you send the right video in future. Um, and oh, there was, much more sympathy towards her than there was towards Mark Harper. Right, okay. Um, so at least, yeah. So neither of them turned up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but t tell me what people who went have told you about it. Well, I spoke it. to our friend. You're well connected. Yeah, I am. Yeah, well, as are you. I spoke to our friend of the podcast, Rob Parsons of the Northern Agenda, who we'll be seeing actually on Wednesday at our live event. Oh, good. Um, absolutely. And um, what you need to understand is that the Great Northern Conference was organised by the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, which, as you know, was set up by George Osborne, the big exponent of the Northern Powerhouse. They had some big businesses in the room, Siemens, Bruntwood, Talk Talk. I think most of them were sponsors, actually. Massive own goal for the Conservatives not to turn up now mark harper's video speech was apparently really downbeat i don't know if he's a welshman it was after they got beat by iran but it was met by zero applause near uh, you normally you get a little bit of plight applause he got absolutely none and there was this conspiracy theory that he didn't want to turn up because he didn't want to answer questions on avante and why they were given a six-month extension to their license he didn't want to talk about northern powerhouse rail and the fact that it's now being downgraded to core northern powerhouse rail and he didn't want to talk about the rmt uh, ongoing strike action as well when deanna davison's video was played or the fact that transpennine express yeah. is going into complete meltdown in december it's timetable they're just not delivering it yeah yeah and there was a, a couple of tweets this week actually tina Dahili came up to manchester from london and she said avante is absolutely appalling you're getting people you're actually getting some you know people from outside the region now complaining about avante which is interesting um when deanna davison's video was played it was met by laughter because obviously it was the wrong video um now apparently a lot more sympathy for her because um, there was a leveling up bill that's being read in parliament on the same day and she was representing the government um but the no shows i think undermine the government's claim that they are committed to yeah up. it comes back to that th feeling again that i've expressed on this podcast before that they regard the north as some kind of charity uh, case that they're doing it for the benefit of the people of the north it's not it has to be part of the project to renew the entire nation and i don't think they take the north seriously and i think they proved that by their no show at the weekend i mean david cameron and George Osborne, like them or loathe them, and I was no supporter of them, they at least came to Manchester to launch their Northern Powerhouse initiative at the Science Museum in 2014, and they seem to lean in and actually believe in it. This lot, I've, I've no confidence whatsoever. I mean, Rachel Reeves was due to speak in the interest of fairness, and she didn't make it to the conference because she's been unwell, but instead sent Pat McFadden, who's Labour's Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, and a proper big hitter, in, uh, in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet. He spoke about what we mentioned last week, which is linking a reforming agenda for the whole of the country to what a programme of a future Labour government might look like. And seeing performances like, like his really does seem to suggest that Labour have got the bit between the teeth on this issue and they want to constitutionally just give a complete overhaul to what's uh, to, to the way the country's run in tune with gordon brown's review i just want to throw something out there though um is that um because occasionally you do allude to my uh, background in the daily mail um many years ago but i heard lisa nandy on uh, laura kernsberg on sunday and i thought she really struggled because she was asked questions about um what would be a fair 
pay rise for the public sector workers. Yeah, she was asked the same on Andrew Neil's programme on yeah. Sunday evening on Channel and 4 And basically well. she says, well, we've not been given sight of the account, so we can't possibly comment on that. You are going to find that it's very easy for, for people on the sidelines to talk about in public sector strikes and this, that and the other, and what's a fair pay rise? A fair question. And it, and I understand why the you know the Labour Party can't say, well, it should be 10%, 12%, it should be linked to inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But, 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 but they're the sort of questions they're now being asked because they are the government in waiting. Yeah, they are. I remember George Osborne made a very good observation on it on, on the Andrew Neil programme on Sunday evening. <laughs> Quoting Peter Mandelson in 1997, he said, you're in touching distance of government and it's like walking across a polished floor holding a Ming vase. You don't want to slip up. You don't want to make a mistake. You feel the prize is in sight, but you absolutely don't want to make any kind of mistake. And they're being dead cautious. Lisa Nandy is sticking to a line of, well, we don't we don't know till we get there. I think that um, Peter Manson quote, I think I could be wrong. I think he originally came from Roy Hattersley or... Really? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the um, Labour politicians from back in the day. Equally, Labour are now being asked for their views on immigration in a big way as well. Yeah, um, they are. And, 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 and Star, Starmer's been expressing them as well, hasn't he? But they won't just be able to... Um, they'll have to put some meat on the bone for that as well. But it's um, been another tough week for Rishi Sunak, who has been in post for a month. So congratulations, Rini, on your, uh, you know, Rishi, on your one-month anniversary. Um, he's coming under a lot of pressure at the moment because of uh, Tory rebellions, even though I don't think there's been any letters of no confidence given to the uh, 1922 committee yet. Um, <laughs> there have been two Tory rebellions about the levelling up bill that's going through Parliament, one over housing and the other over uh, proposals for new wind farms in the UK. Now, I do need to explain this because it is a little bit complicated. Theresa Villiers, the MP for Chiswick, there in the middle of London, she's introduced an amendment to the housing bill to scrap mandatory um, local housing targets and make them advisory only. Now, essentially, this is seen as a move, um, you know, by to, 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 to slow down house building. And the amendment is being backed by around 50 Tory MPs. Some people feel this is being led by a lot of Conservative MPs in the South because they know that house building is a very contentious issue. Um, former levelling up minister for seven weeks, Middlesbrough South and East Cleveland MP, Simon Clark, who we've spoken about on this podcast before. He's had a busy week. He's warned that the Conservative vote will collapse if the party don't get to grips with the housing problem and uh, help people get on the housing ladder. He's also tabled an amendment that is gathering some momentum. Liz Truss backed it and surprisingly Boris Johnson backed it. Seems to have done a U-turn there, Boris, um, on uh, the rules relating to onshore wind farms. Now, onshore wind farms is a big sector in the north, could be potentially a big win for the north as well. And uh, Simon Clark clearly, you know, in a marginal, wants to protect his seat as well and says we need to do this if um, the Conservatives are going to win the next election. Okay, so the lack of housing for young people has been a big bugbear of mine. I've spoken about it before. I've got a sticker on my computer, actually, which says proud to be a Yimby. And I've got a bit of form in this uh, just to, to, to give some clarity to it. My basic view is the housing market is a mess. And I'm, and I'm disappointed that so many MPs are jumping on this bandwagon, including my own, William Ragg, the MP for Hazel Grove, a Conservative. The odds are stacked against young people getting on the housing ladder, but whether they be young people, newly divorced, whatever, people find it difficult to get on the housing ladder if they're not on it already. Not enough affordable homes either are being built by social housing providers, that's housing associations or councils. In Stockport, where I'm currently working, there is an a, 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 a body was set up called Viaduct Homes. It's the legacy of the late, great Sheila Bailey, who sadly died over the summer. 
And it's a council-backed vehicle, which is building homes in Stockport for people at all parts of the market, uh, mainly uh, social housing. But that's too rare. It's the exception. It's not the rule. But I should declare, too, that I was on the board of New Charter Housing before it got merged into Jigsaw Homes. It's a housing association. I was there for four years. And I saw at first hand how difficult it is to get new houses built. It's painfully slow to get around both the procurement process, the, um, the planning process in this country, but the appetite for house building is there. It was there in New Charter when I worked there. The skills are there. But there are, Chris, there are, did you know there are one million people on the waiting list for social housing wow. in the UK from Scotland down to Cornwall? And it's particularly acute in London. Whenever I meet anybody from London, I go, how do you afford to live? No wonder wage wages are going up. Look at the price of rents as well. Going up 23% rents. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, I found this with my, my eldest son who rents an apartment in the centre of Manchester. And he's, he's, he's moved into a smaller apartment for tons more money. Mm. Um, but also, my so therefore, my ire for those who stand against any housing development. Um, New Charter were building houses for... Um, potentially to sell as well because I just think any intervention building any kind of house anywhere in the market helps the situation at some point point. Um, and when I was at Manchester Met University I was in a protracted trench warfare with some protesters in Chorlton who were opposing the university selling some land for a really really good potentially um, housing scheme that's uh, that's that's going to go in there um, and I called the um, the opposition to it the nimbies and the bananas well I know what the NIMBYs are. I've got no idea what a banana is. Yeah, well, NIMBY, as you know, stands for not in my backyard. But a banana stands for build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. <laughs> did that Did that stick, that phrase? It did. It, I yeah. didn't make it up. It's, yeah. it, it is a term that people in planning use quite a lot. But let's not forget, Chris, the Conservatives' 2019 manifesto promised the government would trigger the building of 300,000 new homes a year. And they're way off that. And you've now got the situation in the Sunday Times at the weekend where Sajid Javid, who was, of course, was a housing minister amongst many other roles that he held in government, is saying, I wish we'd gone further and faster. Well, ain't 2020 hindsight really sharp, Sajid? One of the interesting things is, is that the idea that you make it easy to build homes, that one of the views is the developers will just land bank, you know, so they'll just have more land. Because what they don't want to do is if you bring loads of new houses to the market, um, then it'll just drop the price. So the fear is that they would land bank. And actually, physically, they can only build a certain number of houses yeah. at a certain pace. Like, like I said at the top of this item, Chris, the housing market is an absolute mess in this country and it needs interventions at all sorts of different points in it to make it work because I think the Conservatives are terrified of what people would call a house price crash. It's not, it's a house price correction. We've had our house on the market for the last year. We've turned it off now. And I was absolutely, it was eye-watering the amount of money that uh, for a four-bedroom semi in a suburb of Stockport. Millions. Well, not, not, not quite, but, <laughs> but silly amounts of money. And it's yeah. just unaffordable and beyond the reach of so many people. The feeling is that um, the property markets will drop 9%. But interestingly, where I live, in the People's Republic of Chorley, there's quite a few houses going on the market now. And I think people are trying to jump ship now before the property market corrects itself it is a correction you get you get peaks yeah and well, uh, one, of, one of the things what the house we're now living in when we're going to stay put and do a bit of work on it instead of, of selling it, it it's under occupied it's under occupied by 50 percent 
Yeah. And there's plenty, I think, I think around about lots of our friends and neighbors as well where we live. There's loads of spare rooms and they don't need them. You know, it's, it, and yet there are families who are looking, who would want to move Michael, to an you, area like us. Are you in a roundabout sort of way asking for me to move in with you? No, I'm not. <laughs> no. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not asking for William Rag to move in with me, but you're going to talk about him. We're going now, to talk aren't you? about William Rag. I tell you why, because so you heard, you heard, you heard Wee Willie Rag on the uh, he's on, on a the Westminster podcast, show. Didn't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. He was on a Westminster show, um, you know, which I enjoy. On uh, it goes out on a Sunday evening. I listen to it uh, coming into Manchester. And why is he Monday in the news? Because a number of Conservative MPs, a lot of young MPs as well, actually, they've announced that they won't be standing at the next general election. William Rag, William Rag. I thought when I listened to his voice was in his forties. So when I use Wikipedia, he's thirty-four. Yes. Um, so he's announced he's not standing at the next general election. He, of course, beat you in 2015. He did. And he spoke about it very eloquently recently because he spoke about his own challenges with mental health. Um, Chloe Smith, who became an MP 15 years ago, she's only 40. She's overcome cancer. Um, and then we've mentioned her already today, the levelling up minister, um, Deanna Davison. She's only 29, Bishop Auckland. She's announced that she's not going to stand at the next general election as well. Now... Why aren't they going to stand at the next general election? There's a couple of trains of thought. One is that being a politician is a uh, really horrible business. When William Ragg was being interviewed today, or being interviewed yesterday on the uh, Westminster Show podcast, he said that he was asked a question about the Whip's office and was that the reason why he decided to stand down? And he said, no, not the primary reason. He said, but it's clearly a factor because you feel under a state of permanent agitation, I think was the term that he used. Um, I don't think it's fun being a politician, especially, I think, being a backbench politician as well. Um, so the question is, why are so many politicians, conservative politicians, announcing they're not going to stand at the next general election? One view is they've looked at the numbers, they're in the marginal seats, not all of them, and have decided, you know what, we don't want this anymore. Is well, they're going to lose. Yeah, they're going to lose. So um, a lot of it comes down to money as well. The Conservative Party realises that it has to retreat to a defendable position. It's probably written off the chances of winning the next general election, or at least its best possible outcome at the moment, the way the polls are, is that they would have either a, a hung parliament, or um, but at least they want a position to defend. So they're throwing everything at so-called blue wall seats in the southeast of England, held by MPs such as Dominic Raab and Jeremy Hunt, or well, senior ministers, in fact. Um, so they're getting campaign money of around £100,000 to defend their seats, while the average in the south of England is 47000 In the red wall north, so they're the sort of seats that they won in, in 2019. They're seen as a lost cause. And their donations are on average about £10,000, which isn't enough really to get that many leaflets out in the course of a year. Never mind run an active Facebook campaign, which was a real secret to them winning so substantially in 2019 and a, 2015. There's a by-election in Chester on December the 1st, and there is no activity, not that I can see, from the Conservatives in that seat, they have written that seat off. I think so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas you look at the way... I don't think they'll be contesting Stratford and Ermston. No, really. I don't think so. I, I don't just think doubt so. the resources, so why, why, why do so? It's the same. The Liberal Democrats have maintained a presence in our constituency of Hazel Grove and in Cheadle, a neighbouring constituency. They are one of their target seats. They're going to want to have about 35 to 40 MPs at the next election. That would be an amazingly good outcome for them, given that they've basically been able to get all their MPs in a people carrier at one point. 
But if we look at the, I mean, they could move into your house in Stockport, couldn't they, at one point? <laughs> there is no way any <laughs> Liberal Democrat is moving into my house. If somebody wanted to move into your house, would you check what political party they were from? Forget it. Come okay. on, move on. You're being silly now. But the first question we asked, incidentally, was have the Conservatives given up on levelling up? I think if we look at everything we've spoken about in the first 20 minutes of the show, the answer is, yeah, because they're not going to contest a lot of the uh, red wall seats. They're going to focus their attention where they think they're going to yeah. win. Yeah. Um, so the answer is no. Well, or to quote Nicola Headlam, who was on our podcast last week on the extra bonus episode, what we are doing is we're conflating policy with politics. And I'm afraid that's, that is the tail that is wagging the conservative dog. And on that uh, very eloquent uh, description, uh, that's the end of the first part of this episode of Northern Spin. We'll be back after a very short interval. Welcome back to the second part of Northern Spin. I hope you enjoyed the first part. Before we talk about Michelle Moan, both of uh, both myself and Michael have got an opinion on that. I want to ask for your thoughts, Michael, on Andy Burnham. I was watching BBC's Question Time from Skips. I think it's the only non-football show that I watched last week, and I've never, ever seen Andy Burnham so angry. Now, I tweeted about this, saying I've never seen Andy so angry, and Neil Keeling, Chief reporter of the Manchester Evening News, very, very good uh, journalist. He said his bid for Labour leadership has begun in earnest. Now, it might be tongue-in-cheek, there might be something in there. What's your take? <laughs> I'm not sure Andy's bid for Labour leadership ever really stopped, um, both from the two times that he stood before and um, and everything that he's done since he's become the Mayor of Greater Manchester. But I would say this, Andy Burnham is no different from any other politician in that he has to be judged on what he's achieved, not just on his media appearances, however well he comes across on Question Time. And I agree, he always does. I think he's one of Labour's top media performers by far. But, you know, he likes his DJ sound-offs. He's doing this thing with Rowetta and Steve Clint Boone and against Steve Rotherham and various other scousers. You know, and he looks great being We're angry in a North Steve. Face jacket. But, Chris, this is a really serious point. We're now halfway through his second term. And he's supposedly committed to a third. He has said so on a public platform in Manchester. Much to the frustration, though, of senior Labour Party politicians, he does very little to dampen down any speculation that he's on manoeuvres to return to Westminster by one route or another. Now, as a resident of Greater Manchester, personally, I'd like to see his energies directed towards the reforms that he's committed to for transport, buses, Metrolink expansion, tackling housing shortages, attracting inward investment into the city region, building the trust that mayors are competent authorities, working with their leaders around the cabinet table in Greater Manchester to really drive the agenda for a federal, federal Britain of powerful cities and regions. But he also needs to be careful. The seeds of a backlash to his rule have already been sown, not by internal Labour Party critics, because I think that's a grumbling rather than a rumbling. But many people blame him for the, uh, for the clean air zone and the signs that have gone up that say it's under review, that that obviously cost a lot of money to put that in place. And people very clearly identified the imposition of the clean air zone as his political project, and it galvanised vociferous opposition to him. Do you think it's a white elephant now? Yeah, yeah, it clearly is, yeah. Yeah, the government aren't going to introduce it, not, not now. And I don't think he, he wants to introduce it either because he's seen the scale of the opposition to it. But it's not tackling the issue about polluting vehicles or, um, or, or air quality. 
I love that phrase you came up with, a grumbling, not a grumbling. Yeah. See, I think Andy Burnham's really That's quite good, wasn't it? I quite like that, actually. Yeah, I think okay. that might take off, actually. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think Andy Burnham's an interesting character. And I'm one of these people that I don't believe in coincidences. And if you look at the number of appearances that he made at the Labour conference this year in Liverpool, yeah. he was everywhere. He was. You know, he was. Um, I think he's definitely trying to position himself as the friend of the public sector workers in their wage demands. And why wouldn't he? It's something he believes in. He got quite a favourable reaction, actually, from the Question Time audience in Skipton when they were asked about the uh, the rail strikes. I've never seen a politician work a room as well as Andy does. Or he, I, somebody asked me for my opinion on Andy Burnham, and I said, you put Andy Burnham at a lectern, um, he's pretty good, you know, but you put him in front of people and engaging with people, and he's just as good as I've seen. And uh, and people, people like him. Um, I think <clears throat> the Tories clearly don't want to add to the inflation by paying these inflation-busting pay rises. And Mark Harper said as much at the weekend when he was doing the rounds on the Sunday programmes. While the unions say their members need wages that reflect the cost of living crisis, um, I think it's going to get really, really messy. And I think it's going to be a real issue moving forward as well. I'm going to make a prediction, Michael. And, um, you know, I think it's right that I make a prediction. I've made them before. I think Andy Burnham, I cannot see a way that he will not go back into Westminster. I just can't see it. I think he's ambitious. He feels he's got unfinished business at Westminster. Um, now, whether or not that means that he won't stand for a third term as... So that's in 20, May 2024 is the next Greater Manchester mayoral election. Yeah. So given that Sasha Lord and Andy and um, Gary Neville are now members of the Labour Party, does that does your prediction extend to the fact that he won't stand for a third term? I don't despite know the fact he said he intends to. I don't know. I don't know the timing of it. I don't know the timing of it. But if you're Keir Starmer and everyone looks at the Labour Party at the moment and saying that they're the government in waiting, and then you've got somebody like Andy Burnham who is well liked, well thought of in the north, that is a key election advantage that he would be a big asset on any cabinet plus the fact as well he's got a lot of experience because obviously you know he's been an mp for a long time so if somebody said if keir starmer said to uh, andy burnham hey andy um i don't know if this conversation will go like that and i can't do a keir starmer impression we'll find you a nice uh, safe labor seat somewhere and we'll give you a good position in the cabinet i can't believe andy burnham his kids are a lot older now as well i can't believe andy burnham would say no i'm not going to do that now does that mean he wouldn't stand for a third term I don't know. I don't think he would end his second term early because he said that. And I think he's quite an honourable man. Um, but I just cannot see a way where he won't end up in Westminster by hook or by crook. Now, whether that means who's going to replace him, I'm not sure. I know Sasha Lord recently joined the Labour Party, didn't he? So Who knows? Who knows? Um, who, knows? who knows? Anyway, so uh, as well as Andy Burnham, who was on Question Time, um, one of the big things that Andy Burnham got lots of applause for was uh, speaking about David Conn's big piece in The Guardian mm. about the Conservative peer and Ultimo Bra entrepreneur, Michelle Moan, who has pocketed a serious amount of cash on the back of uh, PPE contracts. So what's going on there, Chris? 29 million, apparently. <sighs> Wow. Which is uh, which is phenomenal. Yes, it was a. Uh, I, and, and listen, hats off to David Conn. I think he is an amazing journalist, and the investigation that the Guardian have done is phenomenal. And she's got serious questions to answer. Um, we attended an event many years ago, which I think you were hosting. She was the speaker. What did you think of Michelle Moan? Um, I can't. I can't say that I've formed any hard and fast opinions. She's just another celebrity business person giving those uh, ready-made opinions about how to run a business. And she swore a little bit and she told a few racy jokes. 
And, you know, obviously she's got great stage appeal and was quite a good communicator. Um, so I can't claim to know her beyond that encounter at all. But I met her husband, Doug Barrowman, a few times. Way She wasn't married to him at that event, by the way, at that, that time. Now, he developed a reputation in the corporate finance world in Manchester in the latter part of the 90s and early parts of the next decade as a real racy deal-doer and boy, boy about town in Manchester before he moved to the Isle of Man to run these. And I'm, and I'm choosing my words really carefully here. Because he's wealthy. Ta tax avoidance schemes, which were designed for contractors to avoid paying tax. And he set up a number of investment trusts as well. Those, those tax schemes were closed down by George Osborne, incidentally. And, um, and he's always played this dance with, the, uh, with HMRC. The fact that they hooked up together, they're both Scottish for a start, both from, uh, from Glasgow, that didn't surprise me. But what did you think of her? What was your impression of uh, Baroness Moan when you saw her on stage that day and uh, read those, about those her subsequently? were legal, but some people felt that they, they weren't yeah. right. Well, okay. no, they got closed down eventually. Um, I've got this view in life that I generally don't think I should be nasty or say anything nasty about anybody, and I don't. I think Michelle Moan, who was somebody that I didn't really warm to, um, you know, she famously built up her Ultimo bra business. And I've actually, unless she's changed it, I've got her mobile number on my on my phone. And she sort of comes across as your friend when I was talking to her, because she's very personable. But but I didn't think there was any any depth to it. Um, she um, when she gave her speech at that event in Manchester that, that you hosted, she, there was two things that stood out for me. The first was that she said that she used to be really overweight. And she felt awful about herself because she had three kids and she had no, no she just didn't have any self-worth. And then she lost all this weight and started Wendy wearing sexy underwear. And that was the driving force for Ultima. And she felt great about herself as well. And, and I, I didn't like, I didn't like that message. I understood where she was coming from, but it was like, if you're fat, you know, you feel terrible about yourself. And if you look as great as me. Yeah, but she'd been honest though. She'd been honest. She'd yeah. been honest. But that was just a, a view. Okay. But she, her, her first husband, um, who she had her three children with, he, um, he had an affair and that's what broke up the marriage. But she was so open about that. It was horrible. And I didn't like it. I just didn't like it at all. And look, I'm old school. I, I, I am old school. Um, and I didn't like the way she spoke about the father of her children. Yeah, I, get, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, look, and uh, she did an interview on a very, very good podcast that I listened to, the High Performance Podcast, um, and a brilliant podcast. And it was all about, and we do this charity work, and we do that charity work, and we give here, and we give there. And then you read this investigation by David Cohn, and she's not answering any questions. You know, she's not answering any questions. Uh, and she, they got involved in the whole Bitcoin thing in... Uh, yeah, they did. They got yeah, into crypto, didn't in they? In crypto, yeah, yeah. And they were going to sell apartments, um, you know, and they were going to accept Bitcoin as well. You know, they're always looking at making money and they must be worth a fortune. Um, no, I wasn't a big fan of hers, but... No. I think the, the issue here as well is politicians getting too close to celebrity business people. Um, David Cameron, it, let's not forget, made her appear. Michael Gove was all over her as well. But then Ca Cameron also sucked up to an Australian businessman who located to Cheshire in the northwest of England with his ludicrously overhyped invoice finance business, Greensill Capital, which Cameron then joined after he left um, frontline politics. And incidentally, I saw their abandoned offices in Daresbury recently, another... Um, 
outstanding example of uh, Tory hubris for you right there. And again, you know, the, the downfall of, uh, of Greensill, just as the, the, the kind of what I hope will be the downfall of Doug Barrowman and Michelle Moan, has the hard work's been done by journalists. Yeah. And um, David Conn's done a fantastic job, as we've said in The Guardian. But um, so too had Duncan Maven, who exposed what he called in his book The Pyramid of Lies behind Greensill Capital. An astonishing, astonishing business. There's some great journalists doing some great work. Yeah, there are. Yeah. Don't get the credit they deserve. I, um, I was, somebody said to me, when did my love affair with Boris Johnson end? I would say there was never really a love affair. But the thing that really yeah, incensed me, yeah, yeah, there was. was never a love you, affair you with You loved Boris. him. There was never a love affair with Boris. Um, but when Owen Patterson, the Tory MP, resigned in a lobbying row, he was earning £100,000 on top of his MP salary yeah. for working for a couple of firms. And he was badgering the Food Standards Agency um, with loads and loads of questions on behalf of his paymasters. And that actually, that smell. And then when they tried to change the rules to keep him in power... That was just disgusting. I was, I was furious with it. Over the weekend, The Observer, I think, published a story because The Guardian picked up on it. Um, and they published a list of uh, MPs who have earned an extra five million quid from second jobs. Yeah. Now, I have to make the point because I get incensed when every journalist gets tired with the same brush. Most MPs aren't earning huge sums of money from second incomes. Some are. But if the inference is that, um, that you can buy influence by giving people second jobs, that's when it's wrong. And I think that's the yeah. problem. That, that is the subtle difference. You know, if you're a if you're a GP, a doctor, and you happen to be an MP as well, and you need to keep up your hours or yeah. your your profession to maintain your professional qualification, or volunteer, or do things outside of Parliament if you feel you've got the capacity. But being an MP is a demanding job. Yeah, part of me thinks they're not paid enough. We look at Geoffrey Cox, but it's a lot of money, isn't you it? Look at the amount of money Geoffrey Cox is picking up. He's a barrister, um, isn't he? Is, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's just, um, like I say, um, and I think, I think this, this uh, Michelle Moan, this story is not going to go away. No, it's not. No, and she built her business not on advertising and marketing it, but on PR and reputation and charming the socks off journalists like you at business conferences. Yeah. Um, so there, there we go. Michelle Moan, Andy Burnham, we've covered a lot in that part. And also a big tip to all the journalists out there. We're going to have a short interval and then we'll come back for the fun part. And we'll get the update on your cultural journey. It's all fun, Michael, but this is the funnier fun part. Okay, welcome back to what we sometimes call the fun part of the Northern Spin podcast. So, Chris... I've been trying to help you become a little bit more northern in the course of me and you doing this podcast. We've covered books, music, comedy, TV series, all in our quest to make you a little bit more northern. I would challenge you, I think, we can talk about this in a future episode, um, exploring the mountains of the north of England, possibly. But this week, I want to find out a little bit more about the journalists and the writers that you admired, those that drew you in to want to be a reporter, to apply for your first job, wherever that was. Not people you worked with, but whose work you read and made you think, that's amazing, I would love to do that. Who inspired you? There was a guy called Michael Taylor. Uh, I've always, uh, I always admired his work. He's so much older than me 
And now I find myself on a podcast. No, I tell you who it was. Um, I've never been somebody who's really, really admired many writers, um, past and present. The one person that I I got to know quite well was a guy called, and cricket lovers might remember him, a guy called E.W. Swanson. He always used his initials, E.W. Swanson, known as Jim Swanson. He lived in a place in Kent called Sandwich, and he used to write for the broadsheets, and he used to cover, you know, um, he used to cover the Ashes tours, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And uh, he was the, I think he was the president of Sandwich Cricket Club, and I used to play for Sandwich. And I went to see him, and I went into his, into his, he married quite late in life. I think he was 50 when he married. And I went into his study, and wall to wall, with cricket books and actually I wanted to be a cricket writer for quite a long time so he was somebody that I admired and if I was to throw it forward before I ask who you admired and I was looking at modern writers who I like I mean we've spoken about Jen Williams uh, quite a lot who's now at the FT but I always think the measure of a good writer is somebody that you look at and you see they've written a story and believe what they've said. And for that reason, the Sunday Times journalist, David Walsh, who did that amazing expose on Lance Armstrong um, you know, and the Tour de France, he was the one that I would put above anybody else. But, yeah, um, an incredible story, that yeah, was it. Amazing. Yeah. And, and, and the brickbacks that he got when he did it at the start, but carried on doing it. Who did you admire? Yeah, well, I'm not so much a newspaper type or uh, even sports writers. I'm from the magazine and fanzine world. And I started out, you know, loving music. But even then I understood that the hard yards of journalism always trumped, you know, the, the florid writing. And for that reason, I always really loved PJ O'Rourke and Huntress Thompson, who were from the American new journalism tradition. But I also well remember the verve of writers who wrote for the NME in the 80s, which was, I guess, where I really sort of felt I wanted to be like them and I wanted to be able to write about music and culture and fashion and all those sorts of things. That was what turned me on. And, and it's interesting that two of them in particular, Stuart McConey and John Harris in the NME from back in the day, um, are now sort of mainstream journalists. John Harris writes a fantastic column in The Guardian and Stuart McConey, of course, has written loads of books about the North. And of course, Miranda Sawyer, who I saw interviewing Minnie Driver at a festival last summer, Kite Festival in um, in Oxfordshire. She's a brilliant broadcaster and journalist. And I, I remember being on TV with her on Channel 4's Right to Reply in 1990 when we were um, having a head-to-head -head with Charlie Parsons and Michelle Collins from um, Channel 4's The Word. When things like that, you know, the quality of poor light entertainment on Channel 4 was something that used to incense me. Now, of course, I, <laughs> I simply can't be bothered. Yeah. But I remember discussing all of this with, with Polly Toynbee, who's a, a Guardian journalist. Polly can be as polemical as anyone, but she said it's always about doing the work, doing the research, making the phone calls, listening to the experts. Like you, I'm a great admirer of Jen Williams. She does that. She speaks to everybody all the time. She just listens to people's truth. She's not after a quote. She's not chasing a cheap line. She just listens to people and tries to understand how things work. And again, Polly Toynbee said that to me. I admire that, that, that Jen does it. Basically, Chris, I never stop admiring great storytelling. And what's brilliant about the way technology is changing journalism, although it's a lot to change journalism for the worst, particularly the local newspaper industry, I love the way podcasts have evolved as a medium that we're exploring. And I heard a brilliant one last week by an organization called Tortoise Media, who've done a fantastic podcast on Liverpool and the Unite Union. And it's a real reminder of how to hold the powerful to account and tell good stories yeah. in a compelling way. Absolutely. No, absolutely. It's all about uh, it's all about content, all about insight, which is what we try and provide we try. on the Northern Spin podcast. Um, a couple of things I want to mention, actually. Um, 
But um, I do need to mention your T-shirt, actually. And I, I know, because we are available on YouTube as well, but I know that our, our uh, podcast audience won't be able to see this. You are wearing a fairly uh, dashing T-shirt, which says something on the lines of, something about modern football. What's that about? It's against modern football, yeah. <laughs> is it yet another Michael Taylor protest? I'm afraid it is, yeah. It is uh, an attempt to uh, have my say about the World Cup in Qatar, which, of course, as I've announced on this podcast... I fully intended to boycott. <laughs> well, you said last week, yeah, I'm not going to watch any of it. And then you messaged me. And then and that was half an hour after England's game against Iran kicked off. And you were in a pub watching it. So I'm not one to say to you that your protests, you know, don't carry much, much conviction. But what happened? Well, it lasted, my, my protest against the World Cup literally lasted half an hour after we left the studio last week. I was having a meeting with Yoshi Herman from Manchester Mill. And he messaged me and said, um, can we meet at the Town Hall Tavern instead of wherever we were meant to be meeting? And that's because the England-Iran game was on and he wanted to watch it. And you couldn't not watch it. It was surrounded, the whole pub had screens up watching it. So my boycott basically lasted half an hour. Um, but I'm not engaging with it. I'm not saying I'm on social media. So yeah, what a great result it was last night. Germany equalised against Spain. Yeah, I'm aware that it's happening and around and about, but I'm not going to join in with the circus and pretend that it's all great that it's happening in Qatar. Actually, I, I, th I think the narrative's starting to change as I always thought it would do. It'll be normalised. Next thing you'll be saying, what a, commentators will be saying what a great atmosphere it is in the stadium, how the trains run on time, how the hosts have been really nice and civil and all the rest of it. And, you know, migrant workers and you know, yeah, women's rights will be long, long forgotten in about a week's time. Gary Neville did a very, very spirited um, defence of the World Cup being in Qatar on ITV this week. I saw a, a clip of that. So I think it's changed. And I think the, the, the Qataris had a PR coup with the England fans turning up dressed as crusaders and turning yeah. them away. Yeah. And I think, you know, that sort of cultural relativism, if you like, is showing, hold on a minute, we've got a culture that deserves respect and these people are disrespecting it. You know, it's a, it, it's the thick end of a, of a long I mean, wedge. Who would turn up as a crusader in 40 degrees? I mean, and yeah, their faces are so red as well. But um, well, that, Personally, I think anyone who goes to sporting events dressed in fancy dress needs locking up. But I bet you're the kind of person that goes to one-day cricket in fancy dress, aren't you? You know what? I, I go to cricket and I, the idea of being dressed as a pantomime horse doesn't appeal to me at all because I'd okay. probably be the back end. Um, I do want to give a couple of quick shout-outs, You actually. didn't deny it, though. I bet you've gone... Never as, done it. Never done no, it. Okay. Never, no, never done Fair it. Fair play. I um, misjudged you. No, 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 no. Um, but what I do, I like the way they uh, create these, um, uh, these pub... These uh, you know, these drinking cup uh, chains as well. Um, you so like that's what, that? Well, I like watching great. the way the I like watching the way the stewards <laughs> try and literally try and break it up. Um, a couple of shout outs actually. I know um, I know you want to give a uh, you know raging review to uh, uh, Matt Hancock for finishing third. Did he? He did. Yeah, did he? he did. Yeah. I've not been watching that either. I think I, I didn't watch it, but my wife did. He's definitely you know people have warmed him a little Ugh. bit. You know, no, they have. No, they have. You can say whatever you want. Um, no, I'm disappointed that people have warmed yeah, to him that yeah. he's manipulated the process of being involved in a reality TV show, yeah. but also that people are completely losing their minds over it, that they think that that this somehow matters. Not, not everyone's warm, so it's still a lot of vitriol on social media. Delighted That's what I mean. That's what I mean. I think the, the, the vitriol... Oh, Delighted to see Jill displaced. Scott win it. Jill Scott is the queen of the jungle. Now, obviously, 
I'm a massive fan of women's football yeah, and uh, she's a lionesses um, and uh, she won it. Congratulations to her. Do need to give a quick shout out to Newcastle United um, women yesterday played at St. James's Park, home of the uh, Newcastle United against Barnsley in the uh, Vitality FA Cup second round. And they got 28,500 people watching. Now, they play in tier that's, four. That's more than Newcastle used to get in the 80s. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But that just goes to the strength of feeling in the northeast for for football and women's football. Amazing. Um, so what things, does they say? Did they say how are the lasses now? No, as you go down the tunnel onto the pitch, it says away. It says um, away. Where the lads? Yeah, and they changed it to away the lasses, Aww, which is only a small really? touch. Yeah, 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 oh, just wow. for that game. Great. Um, fantastic effort, and, and women's football's on the up and up. A um, couple of things that uh, caught my eye this week. My wife and my eldest daughter went to watch The Lion King at the Palace Theatre in Manchester, said they loved it. You know, they were talking last week, weren't we, about the whole arts and whether arts should come from London. I mean, this was a London show, stage show in Manchester. It was amazing. Went to Manchester on Saturday. Strange not to see the Manchester market in Albert Square. Sort of feel that, I don't know, it feels like... Do you like the Christmas markets usually? If I'm being honest, no, because it's, okay. um, it's just an elbow fest, isn't it? Um, but but I also understand why people come into Manchester and enjoy that uh, and spending £10 on a, a glass of, a of wine. It's a bit of a townies thing, isn't it? People in Manchester... I went to the Christmas markets in Hull one year and that was basically a garden shed with someone <laughs> serving warm wine. Yeah. Do they, have a minute, do they have British markets in Germany where, where the people flog in cigarette lighters or hooky gear, maybe Cheetah Mill transplant, let's do a transplants spin. itself let's do a too? Let's spin in Berlin. Let's go on tour. I think probably just have German markets in Germany, don't they? Probably. Yeah. Okay. So that's all for the first episode. For the second episode of season two of Northern Spin, quick reminder, we're doing a Northern Spin live show this week at the People's Powerhouse event in Manchester at the Friends Meeting House. We're now on Apple Podcasts, so please give us a five-star review. Tell your friends, tell your family, and give us a positive review as well. We've got some great reviews on, on Spotify as well. Uh, marks out of five. 4.7 is our average. I know. Yeah. You gave us four. Somebody gave us four. Yeah. Anyway, thank you to What Media for recording this podcast and for doing such a great job in making it shine and getting it in all the right places. Thanks too to our sponsors, Oscar Technology, and to Elliot Taylor, our star musician, for providing the track New Beginnings. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Northern underscore Spin One. This has been Northern Spin. I'm Michael Taylor. And I'm still Chris McGuire. All right.